the word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, Thus far, the reading of God's word, brothers and sisters in Christ, you probably know that the word gospel means good news. Uh, Most of you probably know, know this. When this concept is used in the Bible, it speaks of the proclamation that whatever was wrong has now been made right. And just a very brief survey of this in the Old Testament, perhaps the most famous passage and well-known passage for the concept of the gospel is found in Isaiah 52, verse 7. Uh, It goes like this, How beautiful upon the mountains. Now, keep a, put put a pause on that, uh, that phrase right there. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness, who says to Zion, your God reigns. It's upon the mountains. You get this picture that's there that the runner uh, is taking his position on perhaps the tallest peak of whatever mountain is around Jerusalem, and he's shouting to everybody, your God reigns. In other words, uh, it's a very public thing. It's, it's not a private thing. It has to do there with the announcement that the exiles are returned from captivity. Yay! Uh, it's a very public thing. He's got thousands of people right, uh, right behind him, or in a couple hours they're going to storm your city. And it's a good thing. This is how we know that your God reigns. In the time of the New Testament, it refers to a person who was designated to run or sail in front of an army that just won the battle against the enemy. And the guy would call out to the city in very similar terms, we've won! Uh, I don't know if he would fist pump or anything like, uh, like that, but this person uh, who would bring uh, good news, he was referred to in the New Testament times as an evangelist, uh, the one who brings good news. He would bring good news of victory for the good guys, uh, good news of defeat for the bad guys, and there'd be this kind of nonverbal understanding that everybody, okay, if you're not a part of that city, if you're not a part of that country, there'd be this nonverbal understanding uh, that y'all better get your act together, right, uh, and, and get in line with this king who just won uh, this victory. This message of victory would then bring confidence that you belong to the right king, and he can defend you, and he can fight your battles for you. 
I mean, what, what, a, what a good news, what a sense of confidence that, that you would have in your king who just fought for you. We've been thinking about how the church heralds this gospel of Jesus Christ for a number of weeks now, largely because of the Boardwalk Chapel trip. And if you were here last week, you kind of got a little snippet of what our students did out there. They sang the gospel uh, we showed a little program, uh, a little bit of what uh, we do there with, uh, with singing of the gospel. Uh, they did skits that are based upon the gospel. You've seen how they've evangelized to me, uh, even as I played the role of someone who they, an average person who they would normally find out in the boards and stuff like that, and how they led me to Christ. Well, this is something of the product of what we've been meditating uh, on for a bit now. Firstly, we've seen the why of missions and evangelism. Why is it that we do missions and evangelism in the first place? We saw, it, firstly, that, that it has to do with the mission itself. We also saw that uh, it has to do, which, by the way, the mission, as we saw in Ephesians 1, it begins, firstly, primarily in the mind of God. Okay? And then, moving out a little bit farther, we've seen this because of the mandate that, uh, that we have and the means that we have in order to do it. And then we moved on to think of the how of missions and evangelism. Just how is it uh, that this is to be done? Well, we're to do it with confidence, with readiness, and joy. Well, tonight we're going to be looking at the what of missions and evangelism, particularly evangelism for us. In other words, okay, Pastor, I, I, get, I get it. I get the philosophy of it. I get the uh, theology behind it. I, I understand kind of the head knowledge that the conversion of the sinner is on God's terms and it's according to God's provision. It's according to his means. Okay, I get, I get this. And I also get the sociology. I also get the psychology of it, uh, that, uh, that, that, that I need to be confident. I need to be sure in the success of God's plan, that I should be ready, that I should be joyful in doing this. Okay, I, I get that. But what do I say? <laughs> Uh, what is it that, uh, that, that I say? Or, or what are the basic kind of basal concepts that, are in, that, that should be in my mind uh, to inform me or kind of orient me uh, towards evangelistic activity? Just what do I do? What do I say? Well, that'll be on tonight's agenda. The what of missions and evangelism. And there's many ways to do this, many programs available. I suppose you could get kind, of, kind of just pick one that uh, suits you best. But what we'll be doing just tonight is uh, to survey the most basic, the three most basic concepts that should be on your mind in the work of evangelism particularly. Firstly, as it uh, is uh, written in your bulletin, the power of the law. Secondly, the problem of the heart. And then thirdly, the provision of the gospel. And to start our first point, I want, us, uh, I want to emphasize something to you. Uh, take a look again at Ephesians chapter 2. I want to overemphasize this to you, that Ephesians chapter 2 is my personal go-to location for whenever I share the gospel or whenever I have to think about uh, something with a gospel lens. Ephesians 2 uh, is my go-to. This is perhaps my number one passage that I most often go to for all things gospel-related. So if you want to put a star uh, on this page or perhaps put a perpetual bookmark here uh, or whatever, you will be very well served in knowing this passage, knowing the address of this passage. I've turned to this passage many times on many 
many occasions with all manner of people coming from all kinds of backgrounds, uh, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, um, so-called progressive Christians, many, many others. I found that this passage, at least for me, most sufficiently expresses the, en- the essence of the gospel. I've also found that it handles a lot of errors and uh, misunderstandings about the gospel as well. We can say that uh, Ephesians chapter 2, this passage that we just uh, read out of just a, a second ago, uh, gives us a, a fulsome and yet digestible survey of the entirety of the Christian experience, which makes this passage fit the book of Ephesians rather well, actually, might, might I say. Uh, it fits the book of Ephesians as a whole very, very well. This book, um, mind you, doesn't have a specified reason for it being written. Uh, it's about the basics of the Christian life and our unity with, uh, with Christ, our union with Christ and our unity uh, with one another. And so this passage fits this book very well. So all that to say that I highly commend to you this passage for your reference There's other passages like this, but please have this very passage for uh, your quick reference memory. But for the power of the law, we're looking at the power of the law uh, right now. Uh, We come to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, our passage which says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the son's of disobedience. Well, the first order of business in terms of the what of evangelism, at least when I do it, is the exposure of a life that's lived in defiance of God. You got to expose, we got to expose a life that is lived in defiance of God. In other words, we start with what's most obvious, that there are trespasses and sins in which the unconverted currently walk and by which they are characterized. They're known in the Bible as those who commit trespasses, those who commit sins. Now, the technical difference, uh, mind you, between trespasses and sins is something of their knowledge and their willfulness. A sin in the Bible is a missing of a target. That's what a sin is. It's when someone tries to do the right thing but can't quite get there because of some default. They fall short of what they're supposed to do. They fall short of the glory of God. Uh, They fall short of what they're striving for. It's a missing of the target. A trespass, on the other hand, is an overstepping of a known boundary. It's an overstepping of a known boundary. It's an awareness that something is right, and yet they want to do whatever is opposed to it anyways, and they end up doing that. In short, technically, sins are when people don't do what they're supposed to do, and trespasses are when people do what they're not supposed to do. Now, the authors of the Bible don't always bring this distinction uh, out all the time, mainly because they're making other points. I'm thinking of uh, 1 John 3, verse 4. Uh, John there says, sin is transgression of the law. He doesn't make that uh, distinction uh, as apparent right there as Paul does in this, uh, this passage. He's making another point uh, in that uh, very passage. But, uh, but here... In our passage, Paul highlights the relationship between the two. Now, the big question that underlies this very passage is the question, what determines sin? What determines sin? What, how, do you, how do you know what constitutes a transgression? And this is where the power of the law comes in really handy. Just as in verse 2, you see... Um, you're following the course of this, uh, this world. The Spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience... 
just as disobedience can only rightly be demarcated by whatever obedience looks like, sins can only be known in reference to the law of God, specifically in the Ten Commandments. Okay? Sins can only be known in reference to the law of God, particularly in the Ten Commandments. So what we have here is that any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law means that something is sinful. And so how do you apply this to evangelism? Well, we start with the power of the law that exposes sin. Usually I say something like this to, to someone, have you ever lied? It, 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 it's a very cut and dry sort of question. Have you ever lied? Well, I have too. So we both have, have told lies before, okay? Have you ever hated someone? Uh, Matthew chapter two, chapter five, verse twenty-two. Jesus uh, says that if you've hated anyone, as a matter of fact, if you've even called them a fool, you've committed murder in the eyes of God. So we've lied. Uh, we've also committed murder in God's eyes. Have you ever used God's name in vain? God calls that blasphemy, right? So we've lied. Um, even if it's a, if it's the use of the name of God as something that's a, that's a throwaway statement. That's, uh, that, that, that's tantamount to blasphemy. It's taking the name of God uh, in vain, and the Hebrew literally means as though it were nothing. It, it were a thing of vanity. It, it's just like anything else. So using the name of God as a throwaway term, which our culture is very, it's a very popular thing to do nowadays, that's the essence of breaking that commandment to take the name of, of, of God uh, to not take the name of God in vain. That's called blasphemy. So we've lied, we've murdered, uh, we've committed blasphemy in God's eyes. And we could keep going, I suppose, in order to show that we've done all, all manner of things uh, according to the Ten Commandments. We've committed adultery, uh, we've coveted, we've violated the Sabbath, we've dishonored our parents, and so on. The law of God is able to expose sins for exactly what they are. Now, this is a tactic that, that I do. I kind of hang out there for a little bit. Okay? I kind of hang out there for, for a little bit in order to drive the sentence of guilt uh, to their hearts from the, from the mouth of God himself, from the very law of God. I kind of hang out there in order so that they, they know, they come into personal contact with the sins that they've committed. So the law, therefore, is a base indicator that kind of equalizes everyone out and determines that all people everywhere have sinned. All people everywhere have transgressed the law of God, and all people everywhere are in need of grace and mercy. This is where you start with, the power of the law. Secondly, we move on to the next related point, uh, the problem of the heart. Verse 3 uh, here we see something of, of a progression of sorts. It continues from the previous verse where we read of the, the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Uh, in the last couple of verses that, uh, that we considered, we understand that the law of God has the ability to call sin exactly what it is. The law of God has the power to call sin, sin. And therefore, we know that our actions are sinful in some way. In, in other words, uh, we've, we've either not lived up to the commands of God or we've willfully broken it. However, 
I want you to see that there's a progression here in that verse 3 diagnoses the reason why we've acted in disobedience. It's because it's what comes most natural to us. And the reason why it's most natural to us is because there is a problem with our hearts. That's the reason. There's a problem with our hearts, the innermost aspects of our being. God doesn't merely recognize us outside of Christ as, quote, people who commit trespasses and sins, right? Even particular ones. As much as he recognizes those outside of Christ as sinners, transgressors, in other words, as St. Augustine says, we don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Again, we don't sin. Uh, I'm sorry, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. In my version of it, sin indicates that someone is a sinner. It's far worse to be a sinner than it is to have committed sin in God's eyes. And we can see this in our passage here. Namely, that we all, as the passage says, once lived in the passions of our flesh. Now, that doesn't mean that you know, the body is a bad thing or you know, to, to have a desire is, is a bad thing or something like, like that. He means, uh, what, when he says this, uh, this phrase, he means that the, pass- the passions of our flesh stand in stark contrast to the will of God. And it's the passions of our flesh that produce the transgressions and the sins in which we once walked. In other words, the corruption of the heart is the very standpoint from which all actual sins take place. Uh, Most commonly, we refer to this as original sin, which is the problem of the heart. Original sin is the problem of the heart. That is, we inherit, or we are imputed with, is the theological term, the guilt and the corruption of Adam's first sin to us. His sin nature becomes ours by being from Adam's line under his headship. And this means that when we sin, we sin out of our own sin nature. Again, original sin is the position of the heart. It is the problem of the heart that all of us had, which affects all aspects of all of our being. I, say, I usually say this, that, that sins are not as great as sin is. And this forms for us, mind you, one of the strongest standpoints that, again, flattens the whole of humanity out so that every single one of us are in one box. Makes really, it makes things very convenient. It sins, the sins that are pointed out by the law of God indicates that we are sinners. The problem has never been any one sin. The problem has never been any one transgression that has kept us from the grace of God. It's our whole sinful nature that is itself the problem. And so long as the sin nature is there, as long as, as verse 3 says, as long as we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, God identifies us as rebels and therefore we're, we become worthy recipients of his wrath and curse. And so how do I bring this to people? I'm glad you asked. How do we, what, what do we say? I begin something by saying, yes, you've, you've lied, you've stolen, you've blasphemed in God's eyes, uh, you've murdered, you probably have done a lot more things and you've most likely done them knowing that they're wrong. You know why that is. You know why you've acted in this way. You know why you have done this 
It's because that you have a heart that produces wickedness. Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, verse 21, out of the heart comes evil thoughts. Out of the heart comes sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. The problem is the heart, not merely what is done outside on the externals. It's, it's a heart. It's the passions of the flesh by which they carry out the desires of the body and of the mind. And this means that it doesn't matter who you're speaking to. Again, it flattens, flattens everybody out. It doesn't matter who you're speaking to, whether they're incredibly sinful or they're outwardly righteous and, dare I say, idolatrously religious. The problem is with the heart. It's our spiritually dead hearts from which we perform all manner of transgression and sin, and we're in need of, of, of a rescue. We're in need of revival, which is our next point. Uh, the provision of the gospel. Uh, verse 4 gives us the antidote to the power of the law, particularly the sin that it exposes to us, and it gives us the antidote to the problem of the heart, and it starts with these words, but God, being rich in mercy. There are times in which I've spoken to people and their eyes widen up like saucers at this very point. They couldn't imagine that God, who has just called them, has just reckoned them as people who have committed sins, very particularly, and who knows them as sinners, a holy God could ever possibly be merciful, yet even rich in mercy. This is usually where eyes just widen up. They look like, like saucers, as I said. They see themselves as they are. They're dead. They're deserving of wrath. Knowingly or not, they follow the devil. They see the evilness of their heart, the poison that's within them. Calvin, John Calvin has a famous phrase. He says that the heart is an idol-making factory. And every time you destroy one, uh, another ten pops up in its place. The heart is an idol-making factory. But then they see that God himself says about himself in his very word that he's rich in mercy, that is, he's not sparing in mercy, he's not cheap in mercy, he's rich in it. Even more, as the passage goes on, it's because of the great love with which he loved us. Now you can imagine that that's a passage, uh, that's a phrase that can be unpacked. It's the great love, it's with the great love with which I love you that I've invited all of you to my home. And it's with the great love with which I love my wife that I share my home with her. Think of that for a second. It's with the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now that is a full and unbridled response to the sin and darkness of the human heart. If ever there was one, it would be right there. That's one of the reasons why I, I turned to Ephesians 2, because that's a full, unbridled response. I'd like you to notice, uh, how, shall we say, how, how excessive the provision of the gospel is. Take a look at this. As we look through the passage, we start off as sinners who are dead, 
And what we need is forgiveness. What we need is, 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 is revival. We need to be made alive again. That's what we need. But what we receive is that and far more. We receive a seat with the Son of God in the very heavenlies. In the original language, it literally says, in the above heavens. It's a unique word that Paul, I believe, only uses here in Ephesians to point out the exaltation of Christ. And therefore, the exaltation, mind you, the current exaltation of the believer. He has seated us with him in the heavenly places. Even all we needed is just a living heart. That's, that's it. And we get that far, far, far more. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us who were his enemies, who once had a rebellious heart out of which we acted rebelliously, that his kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. You see, the provision of the gospel doesn't really need to be expounded upon that much at this point for it to make sense, does it? It's such a comprehensive, it's such a fulsome resolution to the problem of sin and the problem of the human heart, and no other faith offers this. No other faith offers this resolution as the one that's found in Christ. No other faith. As a matter of fact, not even the counterfeits do. For example, I've ministered to Mormons, as you probably know, you probably have as well. In the book of Mormon, 2 Nephi chapter 25, verse 23, says that you are saved by grace, after all that you can do. But verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this is the point at which I want you to direct the unbeliever to. Christ is the goal of evangelism, so that they look to him, and they see him and his merits, his perfections, And not to themselves, where they see their own demerits, they see their own imperfections, they see their own sinfulness and their own corruption. They look to themselves and they see death, they look to Jesus, they look to Christ and they see life. And so what I do is to direct the flow of this conversation uh, to something like this. Uh, Yes, my friend, the law of God exposes your sin. Uh, The law of God convicts you of your sin. Uh, the particular sins, and the reason why you sin is because your heart is sinful. It's itself sinful. You can do nothing else, in other words, than constantly produce sin because that's the problem of your heart. You're a great sinner, but Christ is a perfect Savior. And just as you've been imputed with the sin of Adam, by grace alone, through faith alone, God can forgive you for all of that. He can give you a new heart, And with that, you must repent of your sin and believe in the sufficiency of Christ, believe in the sufficiency of Jesus to forgive you of all of your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So he secures your present in giving you Jesus' perfect life. And how do you, and, 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 and you know, imagine this. You know how it changes us? It's found in verse 10. You know how this changes us? When this happens, we become his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He secures our present. He secures our future, uh, not only in this life, but also into eternity itself. And so by grace alone, he takes our sins from us. He imputes to us his righteousness. And what do we get? We get him. 
We get him. We get his obedience. We get his perfect life. Take a look at verses 5 and 6. We get his benefits that even Christ enjoys now. And you see how the gospel makes most sense now. You see how it makes most sense. You have the power of the law. You have the, the problem of the heart, the provision of the gospel. This is the what of missions and evangelism. This is how to bring the gospel to the sinner through the power of the law, problem of the heart, indicating the problem of the heart, and indicating to them the provision of the gospel. I'd like to close, brothers and sisters, with uh, just a couple of uh, notes of application tonight. Uh, Firstly, brothers and sisters, I want you to take account and enjoy the fact that you yourself are the mission. Take account of the fact that you are the mission. This is to say one of the best ways to know how to share the gospel is to go through this passage again and give it a personalized reading. Uh, This passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is about you. This is what's happened to you. Because you're in Christ, this is true for you. This is what's happened to you, brother, sister. And if you continue to meditate upon this, and think about it you know, on a personal level that you yourself are the very mission, it'll at least make the task of evangelism that much easier. And I don't say this for all passages because not all of them are meant to be personalized like this, this one is, but the more you personalize this particular passage, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the more you'll realize the grace that's yours in Christ and the more that you'll realize Uh, the quality of the love with which you are loved, the more you'll realize the abounding mercy of God towards sinners such as you that are saved by grace, and the more you'll realize what it takes for a sinner to be reconciled to God and to be saved, and the better you'll be in your ability to express and to announce this gospel to others. And so grow in your appreciation and take account of the fact that you are the mission. Take a look at this passage again tonight and read it more personally. And secondly, don't feel inadequate just because you can't verbalize the gospel. Don't feel inadequate just because you can't verbalize the gospel or because uh, you're not confident in announcing the gospel. Um, Sharing the gospel is difficult. It's, it's difficult. We boiled it down tonight to uh, three basic points here. There's other ways of doing it, many other ways of uh, doing it. But the bottom line is, don't feel inadequate just because of your verbal abilities. Don't feel embarrassed because of your verbal abilities. Sometimes the best gospel witness that you can be in your station in life is just to be a source of blessing to someone. I recently heard a story of someone at Falls Church uh, who was in line at the grocery store, and the customer in front of them uh, gave the cashier a particularly hard time, and they realized that it hit the cash register person uh, rather hard. And so what they ended up doing is they put an extra candy bar on the belt and then paid for the candy bar and gave the candy bar to the cash register lady, and it made her day. She ended up giving her a big hug and told her half her life story. Our regional home missionary, uh, our, our old one rather, Jim Bosgraf is his name. He once told me that he and some other people knocked on hundreds, thousands of doors trying to canvas for people's interest to start a new OPC down in Hanover Park, Illinois. That had almost no impact. That had almost zero impact to the start of the church. 
But you know what did? This is his words. Mrs. Baldwin. Uh, she kept a pot of coffee on. She kept snacks on the table. And Jim told me uh, one time that she perhaps did more for the work of the church that is still in existence right now than any of the missions and evangelism efforts that he had ever done, just by having a pot of hot coffee uh, always on the burner and snacks on the table. The morning that we were to leave for the boardwalk chapel, I found out that there was a, somewhat of a miscommunication between uh, uh, myself and the Rosines, and the result of it was that I didn't have a place for three adults and nine students uh, to sleep that night. And after a sufficient amount of panicking and a heart attack and things like, uh, like that, uh, I made some phone calls. I made, as a matter of fact, one call, phone call. I called a minister friend of mine who was right along the way to the chapel, and I asked if he had any provisions. Within the space of about 40 minutes, uh, a deacon called, and we had beds then for all students and adults, hot homemade breakfast next morning made from scratch by the owner of a local coffee shop who still remembered my favorite drink. She gave us about a gallon of it or so, and I was able to reconnect with arguably who was the most uh, powerful influence in my life, who gave us a personal tour of my alma mater, Geneva College, Now, I say this to ask the question, you know what that did? You know what that did? It told the students that the church pulls itself together. The church pulls together in a pinch. Taking care of each other is what the church naturally does. It's what we naturally do. When the people of God have a need, the people of God stand to meet that need. That was demonstrated perfectly to the students. And you know what that says to the world in terms of our outward witness? You know what that does to the world? Without saying a single word, it silences all accusations that the world could possibly have against us. That that is, it stops the opposition in its tracks and shows them that they're actually welcome too, without a word even being spoken. In fact, this is one of the chief ways that the church in the second and third centuries grew, uh, who were under immense persecution, if you know anything about the history there. It's true even for uh, most all the times, I believe, in uh, the growth of the the church throughout our history. The times of greatest persecution were the times of greatest growth, where the greatest stuff was written, and where the church was most hospitable. So just because you can't articulate the gospel doesn't mean that you're somehow not in support of it. So don't feel inadequate just because you can't perfectly verbalize the gospel. You never know, as verse 10 says, these good works which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them, you never know where they're going to go. You never know, that is, what your outward witness will do. So all this to say, don't feel inadequate just because you cannot verbalize and articulate the gospel perfectly. Sometimes your deeds speak louder than your words. Let's pray. Father in heaven,